Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. Now for your environmental headlines. Indy Star reports that Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita is leading the way to stop what he says is California's attempt to set nationwide climate change policy. Indiana, along with 17 other states, filed a brief with the U.S. Supreme Court on March 11 to hear the case. They are asking the court to overturn a federal appeals court decision that allows a lawsuit by two California cities over climate change impacts to stay in state court. California has no right to use their own state courts to impose climate policy on Indiana and the rest of the nation, Rokita argued in the brief. This brief comes just days after he joined attorney generals from 11 other states to sue the Biden administration over new environmental regulations and climate policies that they say will, quote, impoverish millions, end quote. Advocates say it would be more accurate to say that Rokita doesn't like any stricter regulations that deal with climate change, whether at the federal or state level. Several environmental experts question whether that is what Hoosiers actually want, especially given that Indiana typically ranks among the most polluted states in the country. According to the EPA's Toxic Release Inventory, using data from 2019, the most recent, Indiana releases more chemicals and pollutants per square mile than any other state. And those releases have health implications. EPA data also shows that pollution poses a greater risk to public health in Indiana than in most other states. The state also has ranked among the 10 worst nationally for greenhouse gas emissions per capita, according to the U.S. Department of Energy. Quote, Indiana is routinely at the very bottom when it comes to natural environment rankings. What Hoosiers don't want a cleaner environment? End quote. Asked Peter Henshaw, an environmental consultant who cleans up contaminated sites. Quote, is Todd Rukita really representing the interests of Hoosiers? End quote. One of the important technologies for Indiana's future is wind turbines. Experts say the state could switch completely to wind and solar for electricity generation. It is not clear, however, when this conversion might be complete, because currently the legislature is still erecting barriers. The financial aspects of installing wind turbines are murky, because they are not made available to the public. Since the majority of wind farms are located on farmland in northern Indiana, we contacted Professor Russell Hilberry, an agricultural economist at Purdue University. The pad for a wind turbine is 
is typically slightly under one acre, but given the need for access to the tower, there is a short road. The result is that the land taken out of agricultural production is about one acre. The professor says the value of this land is best represented by the cash rental rate. He says for north central Indiana, the cost is between $200 and $250 per acre. Professor Hilberry said, quote, on the revenue side, the figures are also privately contracted, so these are estimates. The first thing to know is the newer turbines are bigger and bigger turbines pay more. As a ballpark figure, assume that the farmers get paid $4,000 per megawatt of capacity per year. The earliest turbines were just over 1.5 megawatts, so about 6,000 per year. The newest turbines are almost 3 megawatts, which would mean that the payments should be up in the $10,000 to $12,000 per year range." End quote. The wind turbines also generate revenue for local government, so the entire community benefits from wind turbines. Yale Climate Connections reports the Schaefer coal-fired power plant in Jasper County, Indiana, is scheduled to shut down in two years. When it does, about 30% of the county's tax base will vanish. To make up for the lost tax revenue, the county is working hard to attract new businesses and encourage growth. New clean energy development should provide a boost. A solar developer and the local utility are planning to build a massive solar farm in Jasper County called the Dunn's Bridge Solar Project. When complete, it will span about 5,000 acres. It will also include battery storage. The project is expected to be fully operational around the same time that the coal plant closes. So as Jasper County moves away from coal, solar can help supply both a new, clean, renewable source of electricity and tax revenue to support community services. The Indiana Environmental Reporter says a bill that takes away local government's power to choose utilities generated without fossil fuels and that places multiple barriers for state universities to choose how they acquire their power sources is making its way through the Indiana legislature. House Bill 1191, authored by Representative Jim Pressel and passed by the Indiana House of Representatives by a wide margin, seeks to remove the power of local governments to place restrictions on public utilities based on the energy source of their services. The bill would make it against the law for towns, cities, and counties to decide to reduce the climate change impacts of local public utilities by moving away from greenhouse gas-emitting sources, like coal-fired generation or natural gas. HB 1191 would also severely restrict the ability of state universities, which supply much of the knowledge behind climate change efforts in Indiana, from making energy source-based decisions on their own campuses, like choosing carbon-friendly energy sources for buildings or vehicle fleets. Dozens of Indiana cities, like Indianapolis, Bloomington, West Lafayette, and Goshen, have created climate action plans to reduce their impact on climate change. None of the plans calls for banning energy sources, but most seek to eventually transition away from fossil fuels. Pressel's bill would essentially outlaw those attempts. HB 1191 prohibits a local unit of government from prohibiting any particular type of energy source, natural gas, thermal energy, liquid propane gas, when it comes to heating, fueling, electrifying. It just says that all options are open. 
If those options are available today, a local unit should not have the ability to prohibit that. Besides local governments, HB 1191 limits how state-funded universities can plan their energy futures. Ball State University, Indiana University Bloomington, Indiana University slash Purdue University Indianapolis, Purdue University, and other state-funded universities have produced plans to limit their greenhouse gas emissions. Some have the ultimate goal of achieving net zero emissions. Most of those efforts, like those of Indiana's city climate plans, include phasing out fossil fuel emissions. Pressel's bill would allow the universities to pursue those goals, but with strict stipulations. State-funded universities can prohibit or restrict energy sources if the change would result in monetary savings. The bill also disallows the schools from retrofitting buildings with energy-saving or energy-producing components unless the cost of the project can be recouped within 10 years of the installation and bans them from establishing any preference or prohibition on motor vehicles based on the type of energy that powers the vehicles. Representative Matt Pierce, an opponent of the bill since its introduction, said the bill was, quote, searching for a problem to solve, end quote. In her new book, Showdown, Shauna Swan, an environmental and reproductive epidemiologist at Icon School of Medicine in New York, assesses the reproductive damage chemicals are doing to human beings. Her book reveals that sperm counts have dropped almost 60% since 1973. If the situation goes on as it has before, sperm counts could reach zero by 2045. That would mean no reproduction in humans. As Erin Brockovich points out in her review of Countdown in the Guardian, quote, the chemicals to blame for this crisis are found in everything from plastic containers and food wrapping to waterproof clothes and fragrances in cleaning products to soaps and shampoos to electronics and carpeting, end quote. One class of these chemicals, called PFAS or PFAS, are known as forever chemicals because they don't break down in either the environment or the human body. They're cumulative and keep doing more and more damage to our bodies. Besides reducing the quantity of sperm, those ubiquitous chemicals are causing penis size to diminish and the volume of the testes to decrease, thus threatening reproductive ability. The level of toxic chemicals we encounter in everyday life is, quote, killing us literally by harming and attacking the very source of life, our reproductive capacities, end quote, according to Brockovich. Residents of Mead, Nebraska, population 600, near Omaha, began experiencing such health problems as sudden nosebleeds, passing out while jogging, and constant coughing. Bees and livestock were dying. The problems began in 2018 when Alt-N, an ethanol plant, came to town. Alt-N, it turns out, is processing thousands of pounds of pesticide-coated corn seeds, not the untreated corn seeds Mead residents thought it was going to process. By 2020, Alt-N was processing 98% of the treated seeds discarded in the U.S., 600,000 to 900,000 pounds of it per day. In 2019, state environmental officials found levels of neonicotinoids, a common insecticide known to harm pollinators, in one of the large piles of waste on the Alt-N property. 
Government regulations indicate that a neonicotinoid level of 70 parts per billion is unsafe. Researchers found levels of 427,000 parts per billion at the Alt-N site. Early this year, state regulators finally ordered Alt-N to shut down until it disposes of its piles of waste. The plant was supposed to remove the waste by March 1st, but didn't do so. Furthermore, in late February, a frozen pipe burst on a 4 million gallon tank in the shutdown plant. The result was a spill that traveled more than four miles away. The state of Nebraska is now suing Alt-N for not cleaning up its mess. Residents of Mead, who have watched neighboring industries go out of business before, are concerned the plant will become bankrupt and the waste will never be cleaned up. Warren Buffett's annual letters to shareholders are an entertaining read as if your great-uncle were an investing savant. In this year's edition, Buffett has something to say about the transition to clean energy and the necessity of making vast investments in interstate power lines. Buffett said in his letter that Berkshire Hathaway is in the middle of an $18 billion project begun in 2006 and continuing until 2030 to rework and expand the electricity grid in the West. This includes Pacific Corp's Energy Gateway Plan that is in the process of building 2,000 miles of interstate power lines throughout the West. The projects are indicative of how, quote, our country's electric utilities need a massive makeover in which the ultimate cost will be staggering, end quote, Buffett said. Buffett added, quote, Historically, the coal-based generation of electricity that long prevailed was located close to huge centers of population. The best sites for the new world of wind and solar generation, however, are often in remote areas, end quote. The American Society of Civil Engineers gave America's infrastructure a C-minus grade in its quadrennial assessment issued March 3rd. They gave the nation's flood control infrastructure, dams and levees, a D grade. This is a highly concerning assessment given that climate change is increasingly stressing dams and levees as increased evaporation from the oceans drives heavier precipitation events. While drought is a concern in California, the southeast often has flood conditions. The Engineer's 2021 report card gave the nation's 91,000-plus dams a D-grade, just as they had received in each of its assessments since the first one was issued in 1998. Drawing upon the latest data from the Association of State Dam Safety Officials, the engineers estimated the cost of rehabilitating all U.S. dams at $93.6 billion, of which $27.6 billion is needed for federal dams. Over half... 56.4% of U.S. dams are privately owned. The cost to rehabilitate deficient high-hazard potential dams, the failure of which would result in loss of life, is estimated at nearly $20 billion. Over 2,300 dams in the U.S. are in this category. The average age of America's dams is 57 years. One of the older dams in our region is at Lake Lemon, constructed in 1953, WFHB contacted the Lake Lemon Conservancy in an attempt to determine the condition of the dam, but there was no response. Since the launch of the Defund Line 3 campaign in February, resistance to Enbridge's Line 3 tar sands pipeline in Minnesota has been growing steadily. 
Over 130 people have been arrested for engaging in direct action to stop construction. Over 200,000 people and 370 organizations have demanded that President Biden stop the pipeline. If built, Line 3 would result in a 10% expansion of the tar sands. It would release as much greenhouse gas as 50 new coal-fired power plants and more greenhouse gas than the entire state of Minnesota. Bank CEOs have received more than 600,000 emails and 2,000 phone calls demanding that they stop funding Line 3. Actions have been held at bank branches in New York, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Seattle, Los Angeles, and Chicago. More actions are planned for Portland, Oregon, Houston, Washington, D.C., and Providence, Rhode Island. Recently, the banks financing the pipeline canceled a planned $2.2 billion loan to Enbridge and replaced it with an $800 million so-called sustainability loan. Tara Hauska, one of the leading indigenous activists fighting the pipeline, calls this move, quote, greenwashing at its worst, end quote. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch reports that the Grain Belt Express is under attack again in the Missouri legislature. Conservative lawmakers insist that they cannot justify the taking of private rural land by eminent domain for an energy transmission project. It is the exact opposite stand their side has taken regarding another massive eminent domain property seizure for energy transmission, the Keystone XL Pipeline. An arm of that pipeline runs through northern Missouri along a path parallel to the one the Grain Belt Express would use to carry electricity from Kansas wind farms. Conservative Missouri lawmakers have tried every justification possible to argue against the $2.3 billion Grain Belt Express. Critics say this is about protecting the rights of property owners, Missouri farmers and ranchers. However, when it comes to protecting the rights of property owners from having their land seized for the Keystone Pipeline, conservatives are all for it. Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt was quick to condemn the Biden administration last month for revoking the Keystone XL construction permit granted in 2019 by the Trump administration. Conservatives said Biden's move, quote, is a job-killing decision that will burden Missourians with higher energy bills. This decision will also force the United States to increase its reliance on foreign energy sources, just as the United States was achieving energy independence, end quote. The irony here is that the Keystone Pipeline would import dirty, high-sulfur Canadian oil to U.S. refineries. People of the United States would have to contend with the refinery pollution. It's not too hard to find salmon on the menu in the United States, but that seeming abundance, much of it fueled by overseas fish farms, overshadows a grim reality on the ground. Many of our wild salmon outside Alaska are on the ropes and have been for decades. Twenty years ago, Pacific salmon were found to have disappeared from 40% of their native rivers and streams across Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and California. In places where they remain, like the Columbia River system, the number of wild fish returning to streams is estimated to have plunged by as much as 98%. Today, 28 populations of West Coast salmon and steelhead are listed as threatened or endangered under the Endangered Species Act. Along with historic threats, 
there's another new factor making salmon recovery challenging for Washington and other West Coast states. Climate change. Increasing temperatures are causing snowpack declines, resulting in warmer streams that can stress or kill salmon. Additionally, more precipitation falling as rain instead of snow causes rivers to run faster earlier in the season, which can wash away salmon nests and sweep young salmon out of their calm water habitat before they're ready, reducing their chances of survival. It's not just freshwater habitat for salmon that's changing. A recent study in the journal Communications Biology looked at how eight populations of wild spring summer Chinook from the Snake River Basin fared during the ocean phase of their life, and it's not good. If ocean warming continues, by the 2060s, mortality for Chinook could be as high as 90%. Salmon farming is banned on the West Coast and on the East Coast of the U.S. There is extensive salmon farming in the Bay of Fundy. Norway and Chile produce a large portion of the farmed salmon market. The New York Times reports that one of the federal government's main efforts to push Americans to prepare for climate threats is in question after the Senate Majority Leader's office objected to a plan to adjust flood insurance rates. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, was preparing to announce new rates for federal flood insurance on April 1st so that the prices people pay would more accurately reflect the risks they face. The change would very likely help reduce Americans' vulnerability to floods and hurricanes by discouraging construction in high-risk areas. But it would also increase insurance costs for some households, making it a tough sell politically. Last week, the office of Senator Chuck Schumer of New York, the Democratic majority leader, pushed back on the changes, according to several people familiar with the discussion. That pushback has caused FEMA to pause the rollout of the new rates. In New York, the main concern is Long Island. Some of the most expensive properties in the U.S. are located on Long Island, especially in the Hamptons. Last year, over 180 countries signed the Basel Agreement to strongly restrict exports of plastic waste from rich countries to poor ones. However, the U.S. didn't ratify the global ban and so is still exporting plastic waste. In fact, trade data from January, the month the agreement went into effect, shows that globally scrap plastics exports have increased. Much of the plastic waste the U.S. exports doesn't get recycled, but ends up in foreign landfills as waste or in rivers, streams, and the ocean. Vietnam and Indonesia openly incinerate plastic garbage. China used to accept most of the plastic waste, but in 2018 banned all shipments of it. That nation announced that it no longer wanted to be the, quote, world's garbage dump, end quote. Since then, U.S. companies have been transporting plastic waste to Malaysia and Indonesia. Last year, an industry trade organization representing the world's largest petrochemical manufacturers, which make plastic, lobbied U.S. trade negotiators to pressure Kenya into continuing importing plastic rubbish. Congress would have to pass legislation to ratify the Basel Agreement, before traders shipping plastic waste elsewhere could be prosecuted. Without such legislation, the U.S. government is hampered in its capacity to halt plastic waste exports. 
Only about 9% of plastic is ever recycled. A huge amount of discarded plastic ends up in the ocean. A new study published in the journal Global Change Biology found that in the last decade, ocean fish have doubled their consumption of plastic, and the rate is increasing by more than 2% per year. 386 species from the ocean and estuaries, it turns out, have consumed plastic. Of those species, 210 are species humans dine on. Almost nothing is known about how ingested plastic influences fish and marine ecosystems, and even less is known about how eating fish that eat plastic affects human health. However, there is growing concern about how ingested plastic affects humans. The researchers found that 75% of commercially fished species consumed plastic, including those common in recreational fisheries and aquaculture that, quote, have the highest likelihood to be part of the supply chain, end quote. One commonly eaten fish, sole, the researchers found to be of special concern. FedEx's entire partial pickup and delivery fleet will become 100% electric by 2040, according to a statement released recently. The ambitious plan includes checkpoints, such as aiming for 50% electric vehicles by 2025. To reach this goal, the delivery company would commit more than $2 billion to vehicle electrification, sustainable energy, and carbon sequestration, according to the statement. Quote, we have a responsibility to take bold action in addressing climate challenges, end quote. Frederick W. Smith, chairman of and CEO of FedEx Corporation, said in the release. For EcoReport, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. And now for our events calendar. There will be an amphibian outing at McCormick's Creek State Park on Friday, March 26, from 6 to 8 p.m. Friends from the Hoosier Herpetological Society will take you on an adventure to the State House Quarry, where you will flip logs and explore an amphibian mating pond. Don't forget your flashlight. The Hinkle Garten Farmstead Museum, 2920 East 10th Street in Bloomington, will be open from 1 to 4 p.m. on Saturday, March 27th. Masks are required for the inside tour of the farmhouse. The farmstead is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Take a full moon hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, March 27th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Join Anthony at the Spring Mill Inn front patio for a brisk moonlit hike on Rugged Trail 3, which is 2.5 miles long. Learn why the March full moon is called the Full Worm Moon. The Winter Exploration Hike Series that features off-trail hiking through lesser-known areas of Monroe Lake will have their next hike on Wednesday, March 31st from 9.30 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. The hike will be to the Yellowstone area located along Hunter's Creek Road. Registration is required by March 28th at bit.ly slash weh dash mar31 dash 2021. There is no set path and no toilet facilities. Dress according to the weather. To honor Earth Day in 2021, which is coming up on April 22nd, the public has the opportunity to get compost bins and rain barrels through the Monroe County Solid Waste Management District and the City of Bloomington. There is a charge for the bins and barrels. Go to www.gogreendistrictorders.com to order by April 15th. 
Both practices help with stormwater management, increasing water quality, and reducing erosion. And that wraps up our show for this week. The Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. David Lyman wrote the script and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report.